1: Thank you for listening to this podcast one production now available on Apple podcasts, podcast one, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey, it is Ross Tucker from the
0: Ross Tucker football podcast, among other NFL related podcasts, the former NFL offensive lineman. And yes, we are going to have an NFL season.
1: It is here, thankfully. So if you want to bet on the games, it is the even money podcast. If you just want to play fantasy football. Fantasy Feast Podcast, or every day your NFL fix, the aforementioned Ross Tucker
0: Football Podcast. Welcome to Real GM Radio, I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Matt Moore of the Action Network, longtime guest of the show, and we have a lot of things to talk about, including the series that are either done or almost over, also, of course, the series to come, though we have the challenge of recording this immediately before Game 7, so we can't preview the Eastern Conference Finals. We'll talk a little bit about the speculative matchups, of course. And a really great conversation, as always, with Matt. I hope you really enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by On online use the podcast one promo code to get your special sign up bonus and to tell them that you came from us here's a conversation thanks so much for coming on thanks for having me one of the main reasons that I, I mean i always love talking to you but one of the main reasons that i wanted to have you on was you had articulated this idea that the bucks were more vulnerable specifically against the miami heat than i thought and i it was really impressive and, and kind of incredible for me to see that really bear itself out so how do, how do you feel like? Because I know you, basically you can walk people through why you why you felt that way, and I, I'm I'm interested in kind of whether it played out the way you you expected or thought that it would.
1: It did. Uh, I'm actually mad that I didn't go further. So I, I bet the Heat a lot of different ways, and I, I cashed on their series price. But I uh, also was going to go harder on them. I went big on them in six because I was like, well, the Bucks are going to win two games. I mean, the Bucks aren't going to not win two games. Yeah, they only won one game and it was very sad for me but uh, I wish I got a little bit harder. It was mostly, you know, the clincher for me was when I went back and before the series and I knew it was going to be those two. I went back and I looked at, um, like I'd had the idea of the Bucks always follow these hot shooting teams. They go cold at the wrong moments. Um, Jimmy Butler is the exact type of guy that's gonna gonna hurt him. What really clinched it though was Drogic and how well he had played in the bubble. Like when every single game, you're like, man, Goron looks really good. Like that's that's a killer for the way that the Bucks play defense. Having a guy that can shoot off the dribble that will shoot behind screens with a confidence and efficiency that Drogic can, I was just like, that's a recipe for a nightmare. And then I went back and watched the regular season and I noticed that in line with a lot of the the modern three point defense thought process, which says like guard the really good shooters and let the other guys shoot a lot of threes. That's really dangerous in a series against a team that has so many shooters like Miami. And I knew that I was like, they're going to take away Duncan Robinson, which means there's gonna be more room for Dragic and more room for Jay Crowder. And like, this is a big thing. It's like if you if you say that on the surface, you're like, "Oh, that's going to work for the Bucks because Jay Crowder shot like 29% from 3. He's not a reliable shooter." But if if Crowder is is stepping into open, good-look threes on a team with a lot of attitude and confidence, like Boston when he had a good series there, Dallas before that, that's a real comfort zone for Crowder. So I'm not surprised at all that Crowder just shot the absolute lights out in part because of what I just kind of talked about there. There's also there's a narrative part of this which I can't really articulate, and everyone I think is hesitant to because there's no it, it's it's illogical. But I I see it over and over and over again. So there's a better that I talk to a lot, like a pro better, and he told me once he was like every other sport I try and bet against the narrative because it's usually a lie, like it's media fabricated or exaggerated for uh, whatever content they're trying to pull up. The exception is the NBA, because in the NBA, the narrative more oftentimes than not winds up bearing out in the results. And that's weird, but it's certainly true. And the narrative absolutely in this league is teams like the Bucks do not win and do not catch the breaks And teams with great culture and winning attitudes like Jimmy Butler absolutely do. So you combine all of that. And I didn't feel like there was any other way to go except with Miami.
0: Well, and and then the other part of it that that weighs in for me is also coaching staffs that are defensively creative and have good personnel can develop over the course of a seven game series or before a seven game series in the case of Miami here a scheme to shut down things that lack versatility and like that's what I think is is a really interesting idea. So I, I've talked before, uh, Jared Dubin and I actually former former Hardwood Proxys and writer Jared Dubin and I talked about a lot about the the difference between Budenholzer and Nick Nurse on last week's Real GM Radio, and the idea that defensively, the Bucks never really tried many other things. But offensively, I think in some ways it was more personnel than anything else, and especially losing Malcolm Brogdon, was that the Bucks they didn't, in certain circumstances, it was they couldn't. And in certain circumstances, it was that they didn't really do many, many different things, many other things. And like, Nate and I were talking, we drew in the NBA cast about like they ran some, when Giannis got hurt, they ran some high pick and roll with Bledsoe and, and Brook Lopez. They basically hadn't done that all year. And Giannis is a wonderful player. He's a deserving regular season MVP for the second consecutive year. And this isn't his fault. I think a lot of this is more on not only John Horst, but also on Bucks ownership's willingness to spend because they had to get more limited players. More limited players can't do as much. And so I, I talked last week a lot about the Bucks inflexible defense, and that your conversation made me think a little bit more about their offense, which is when a team knows exactly what they're going to do, and they don't really have that many counter punches, then it, it sets up this basic binary, which is how much of that can you take away, and the Heat, partially because they have a great coaching staff and partially you know having players like Bam and Jay Crowder and Jimmy Poe, like a lot of capable players... They were able to do the things they needed to do in transition, forming a wall, stopping some of that, and then making the Bucks a half-court team. And the Bucs weren't a great half-court offense.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of levels to that as well. I wrote a big thing on action about um, about Budenholzer, and like I asked around, I asked a lot of, I asked every like person I could get a hold of, and I asked like league personnel. I said, why don't coaches adjust? What causes them not to? And the response was, it was really fascinating because it was about, the word that was used twice was, it's about principles. It's that you believe in these principles and these are the things that define your coaching style. And you are so tied to those and you've committed so much to making those principles work that the idea that those philosophies just simply aren't apt or applicable or right or the most effective tactical advantage, that those things... It causes a cognitive dissonance, and that's why coaches typically tend to, to double down on the idea of, you know, it's it's not about adjustments. We just we just got to be better. We we just got to do what we do better because they look at the film and they go, yeah, but if you've done this, and the players are trying to I think communicate, like the players, I think oftentimes are just going to say, like, yeah, I, I'll do better next time, coach, rather than like I can't physically get out there. Or even if I get out there, he's just going to hit that shot. And they always want to believe in the optimism of like, if we just do this better, we can do it, guys. And instead, there really does need to be more of, an, of this idea of tailor what you're going to do to your opponent. Like, I've long felt this, and I just think it's a huge weakness. Like, Nurse is one of the only guys that gets it. And, and like, I don't think Kerr do, does this enough.
0: No, he he doesn't. And that's going to be especially relevant if we get into a circumstance where the Warriors are really good but don't necessarily have the talent advantage. That will be a fundamentally yeah. different. That'll be a fundamentally different element to it. And yeah, I think that's also like Stevens isn't as good as Nurse, but I think he he has more of that that propensity than most coaches, and that's part of why the raptors celtic series has been so fascinating. Um, and you know that that the adjustments that both teams have made, and also like Stevens is good at understanding what another team might do, and just like like the way they attacked the box and one at the beginning of game six, like I thought that was really interesting, and basically forcing the box to change because they because they were getting all these open corner threes, and so N- Nurse, I think you're right. He's he's at a level all by himself there, and it's and it's a philosophical top to bottom thing. It's the idea that we're, we, we're going to ask you to do a lot, but we're also going to use it at an important moment. So there's a real benefit. This isn't, you know, studying something just because it's on the test. This is like, this is going to win us a championship. And I also think he gained so much equity just like Popovich did, um, like, you know, at this, at this stage by winning a championship. Like, I think now, think about, I think Nurse's next 10 years get a lot easier because he can just point to that ring on his finger and say, look, it worked.
1: Yeah, and I, I just... I think too often. I think this is all. I, I keep returning to the flaws of the regular season, and it's just inherent with where I'm at with the game right now. The regular season it just reinforces this idea where you're like, well, look, this worked for 82 games or in this year 60, whatever. Like, why why wouldn't this work in the play? Like, yeah, it's tougher. Yeah, the playoffs are different, but we're not. We're not like a fast. Like the the Bucks really were a fast break team, but they were even more balanced this year towards half court offense than they were last year. True. Um, and it's like, you know, why wouldn't this work this year? And the reality is just like you have to approach every specific series as you have to give that opponent respect for what they do well and what they don't. And you have to find the weak points in that and attack them consistently in order to break their scheme against you. And a lot of this is just like, um i also say this, just Giannis, I have have lauded Giannis written about how he was de- without question, the MVP two years in a row. Like no one's arguing with that in seriousness and like, he's the most dominant physical player in the league, but he just doesn't, he doesn't have enough counters. Like right. that's a lot of it is just like there, as much as Budenholzer lost that series and he was reason one a and one B and one C for why they lost that series. There is also a matter of Giannis. If he had a short jumper, if he had uh, a, a reliable three that he's tried to work on, if he had a floater, if he had if he had counters, if he were a better passer can, on drives, it, if you, then you could yeah, then you could break the wall. But instead, they just ran up against it over and over and over again. And part of that also gets into they ran more pick and roll action involving him as a screener than they did last year or at any point in Giannis's career, which I was like, OK, I got to see it. But that's like a good sign. The problem is just like Eric Bledsoe is just not good enough. Like he's just not a 16 game player. And that sucks. And I wish that he was because I like Eric Bledsoe and think he's a fantastic defender and all of these things. But he's just not and, like we're heading more and more towards this, Danny, like. The whole thing about how there's there's 82 game players and 16 game players, like we're just seeing it. Like we're just – there are guys that we just definably can say they do not – they thrive in this environment and they do not thrive in this one. And Eric Bledsoe hasn't thrived to the point where – there was never a point in this series or in the Raptors one last year – where you were just like, oh man, X Buck is just killing him, outside of Chris Middleton. And the problem with Chris is Chris can be re- have a great game and score thirty, but he's not going to score fifty. And that's like what they need is they needed you guys just like if you're going to put all this attention on Giannis, I'm I'm dropping fifty on you. And they just do not have it
0: right and and one way of thinking like was well, something that i've been thinking about a lot with eric bledsoe is the idea that he's just their love their their threshold tests like let's say for a catch and shoot shooter and it's a lot of times it's subjective but it's subjective that's loosely based on objective and so bledsoe is not a good enough shooter so that Either teams will—so there are two thresholds. It's will they guard you, and will you make them pay for not guarding you? And Bledsoe, to me, he—no he, uh, on both of those. He, they won't guard—you like you can, you can help off of him, and he won't consistently make you pay for that. And so then—this uh, is, to me, one of the stories, and I'm sure we'll get to Rockets-Lakers. This is one of the big stories of Rockets-Lakers for me as well— And if a player doesn't pass that test, whatever, really, whatever position they play, other than center and sometimes center, it makes the life so much harder on the overall offense because then that brings it... It's an easier place for help. You can recover. can bring guys to the rim. Everything else. And so... As much as it is about Eric Bledsoe not being good enough as a half court initiator, you know, not being able, not being good enough intuitive, running the pick and roll, finding, finding cutters, everything else. And I agree with all that. I think that's true. There is the second threshold of, if you're not good enough at this, are you at least good enough that they'll pay attention to you? And that was the part, you know, like I harped on the Malcolm Brogdon thing for a long time. It's like, well, Brogdon did both of those things. Brogdon was, he's not the best shooter in the world, but teams will generally respect it. And he can do other things. You know, he can attack downhill, something that actually did pretty well against the exact same Miami Heat. Not perfectly, not enough to, you know, win a game in the series. But I thought that had, uh, sorry, Brogdon had some good moments. And it's, so it's a really interesting thing. And I, I, I lean back on something Nate and I, you know, we've talked so much during the playoffs over the last five years. Something he kind of articulated, I think it was about two three years ago, and I think it originally started with DeMar Rosen, and the idea was that the regular season is about your strengths it's about what you can do that another that you know I, I use the term undeniability or a lot of other things but the but the playoffs are often about your weaknesses what are the what are the things that you can't do very well that can be exploited and the Bucks' strengths are fantastic they 're undeniable, especially when you're cycling through teams every day it, but their weaknesses are. Pronounced and their strengths are not, un- they're not, they're not in that undeniable fra- framework, at least against certain opponents.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I- I've made the argument. The, the Brogdon thing is really, uh, I don't know if it's complex. It's fraught. I think. Agreed. Um, there is a consensus. I think that everyone can agree. The Bucks would have had a better opportunity to win that series with Malcolm Brogdon. I don't think anybody's disputing that. Um, I don't know that Brogdon is the difference in a 4-1 series. Agreed. Uh, but it it's like, yeah, but you got to give yourself a chance. If you're trying to say we did everything to keep Giannis, that's objectively not true if they decide not to keep Brogdon because of salary cap reasons. Um like well, and, you just you-
0: another another part of that was they accumulated a first round pick at that sign and trade that they then didn't use to make the team better and right. even if let's say even if they you know this runs long term and they draft somebody with that with that pick and that person ends up being good they're not going to be good for a couple of years and by that point. Brook, like especially if we're talking a late first, like we're you know some of those players can be immediate like rotation contributors. You don't expect somebody to be a starter right away. You know it's gonna be that arc of like okay they're maybe in their second year they're contributing a little bit in the playoffs. In the third year, if, if things go super well, maybe they're fringe starter like that sort of thing. And by that point, Lopez is gonna be older, Bledsoe is gonna be older, not on the team, probably not on the team, and they had an opportunity. And I mean, I, I gave credit to the Bucks last year for going after Nikola Mirtich. I thought that that could work well. It ended up not working out super well, but at least they tried. And that was what really frustrated me with the Brogdon thing. Is And I think you're. I think it's good that you brought up the point that he wasn't, you know, it's not like, oh, with Malcolm Brogdon, they're obviously winning the series and obviously winning the championship and they were cheap and that's the reason they lost. Very fair point to make. But where especially when thinking about the argument that, ownership in particular has to make to Giannis in a year from now saying why you should stay with us is can you trust that in the future we will do everything we can to build the best possible team around you and as you said they can't say yes because they turned that down after a year when they were the league's best team in the regular season and they didn't do it I mean sure there was an element of Brodgens had a bunch of injury history and everything else and they did get they did get an asset for it and it was arguably too much money for him but it's, I, I I think back to all of these other, you know, players that have left situations. And one of the easiest things is like, well, you left something on the table. And I'm not saying Giannis feels that way. I have no idea. I have not talked to him about this. He wouldn't tell me anyway. But you want to give yourself every possible argument. And that doesn't guarantee it's going to work. Like Toronto with Kawhi Leonard, they gave him every reason to stay and he didn't. And that's, that's just the way it can work sometimes. But if you don't give a player every reason and the example i use here is oklahoma city with kevin durant if you don't give them every reason then there's then there's a stronger a stronger possibility that they look elsewhere
1: yeah and i think a lot of this comes into i talked about this on a podcast with anthony irwin over at locked on lakers about the reality is is that the owners are competing against each other for championships and that's how the fans feel but the owners are also competing against each other for money yes and When the Lakers and the Clippers and the Celtics and the Bulls and the Knicks uh, and other of these teams and the Heat included are able to not have to face the same decisions, where if they re sign all of their guys and give themselves the best chance at a championship, it doesn't impact whether or not they clear a significant amount of revenue or finish under. The owners of these other markets go, That's not fair. Like, I don't want to. Why do I have to pay more? Like, why don't I get to make money and win? Like, I should be able to make money and win because they make money and win. So they f- they try and find these ways to not do that.
0: Right. And and that's the really interesting idea behind the luxury tax, people thinking that it's hurting the top teams when in fact it's actually hurting the middle class. The bottom, the bottom teams. Bottom because, well. they, because they don't have the same revenue base. And so the it does make it more expensive, but it doesn't make it unpalatable or impossible. And- That's the real, like, the really interesting thing uh, that – so I've long compared owning an NBA team to, like, purchasing artwork, like, that you're not doing it for the investment, though sometimes it is one. Um, But that isn't – but that only matters if that's the way the actual people see it, and that isn't. We know that straight up. Yeah. That that a lot of times they're they're prioritizing other things, and I -hmm. think you – like, in my mind, as somebody who distinctly does not have that kind of money – I would want to become wealthy so that I could do these things. I wouldn't want to do these things and add exactly. wealth. You know, like that's yeah. but that's that's how I am. And I know I know that not only is there a weird like survivorship bias with the people who end up getting that kind of money, but also it's like it you know, it it really does come down to how these 30 people see it, and we know there are some very prominent differences of opinion. And also there are prominent differences of opinion, partially based on how they got to that point. Like Steve Ballmer. Even if he loses X amount of money per year on the Clippers, he's still going to have more than he could ever use. So that's very different than like like a family business or somebody smaller or something else. And the other weird part of it is that other than like some very basics with like the minimums and stuff like that – and this was actually my biggest criticism of some of the Donald Sterling story is the league doesn't have – if you wanted it, protections in place. Basically, they're like, you can own the team kind of however you want, unless it gets into some of these very specific things. And so that, it creates this interesting thing where it's like, okay, well, you can run it however you want. And so if you, if teams see the luxury tax as a firm barrier, the league isn't going to do anything about it. And I don't know whether they should, but they're not.
1: Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of this is, is we see, you mentioned like, it's like owning art. The problem is that Clay Bennett and Lazary are able to say, I own this piece of art, but to keep up this piece of art with restoration or whatever else to house it affect, you know, so, so that it does not lose value. I have to spend X amount of dollars and I can only charge Y because of the market that I live in versus Jeannie Buss and Steve Ballmer are able right. to say, are able to charge $500 per person just to come look at the painting. And so it's like, they own this piece of art, and they don't have to care whether it makes money, but it also does, yeah. and that fundamentally changes the conversation about it. And this is where we get into – but the response to all this is 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 a, a very typical and understandable – like these are billionaires. Well, I'm not going to feel bad for them. I'm not telling you to feel bad for them. I'm trying to explain like why those things happen. And if we don't want those things to occur, what should happen? And, like, I will also say this. There were outstanding circumstances with James Harden. It wasn't just a money decision. There were a lot of things going on with that team and the dynamic of those guys. Like, James Harden wanted to be what he has become in terms of an MVP guy with a max shoe deal, with a max contract on his own team as a superstar, an all-star every year. Um i think malcolm brogdon had some disagreements with the coaching staff i think that that was a a thing that that existed not major ones but enough to where it made it to where it was like and then the other problem is if they had won this series and they had gone on and won a title you would just be like well they didn't need him because they were better without him like they were better this season without him they improved year over year um but ultimately this gets back into they tailored their team to have specific role players And, and this is another thing we look at the teams that are having success, right? The Celtics are on the verge of of winning and going to the Eastern Conference Finals when we record this. Uh, if they lose, it's because the Raptors did what they always do, which is not necessarily play well and find a way to win. <laughs> like, that's what the Raptors have basically done in the series. Um, the Heat have won because... It's Jimmy Butler and Goran Dragic and Tyler Hero as well as Bam Adebayo and Jay Crowder hitting shots and Iguodala doing this thing. The Clippers are hitting the Nuggets with – got to worry about Ka- Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Marcus Morris off the dribble, Lou Williams off the dribble, Patrick Beverly filling in some spots, and Montrez Harrell dunking the ball. Um, the Lakers are largely winning with defense. But three of, the, of these teams that we're discussing have multiple on-ball creators – that can get their own shot and make them off of the dribble versus the regular season teams are designed for spot up opportunities. And this is something I've just been thinking a lot about the spot ups in the regular season are the most efficient advantage you can have. If you're good at them in the regular, in the playoffs, it entirely becomes, I think about how you shoot off the dribble.
0: Yeah. And what you can create for others. And what's interesting about the bucks is they have, you know, their best on ball creator is a lot less valuable off ball unless you're using them as a screener. Of course, if you do that, as we talked about earlier, lots more to discuss with. Matt Moore, but first a message from Bet Online. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be on the action at Bet online. Bet BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season from game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props. BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And make sure to use the Podcast One promo code for your sign-up bonus. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering to win division and championship features today. Lots of big games on opening weekend including Seahawks Falcons, Packers Vikings, Tom Brady's debut on the Bucks which is going to be so weird, Buccaneers Saints. Those games are all on Sunday and Cowboys Rams, Dolphins Patriots and just having football back is going to be very exciting. I I know I cover basketball but I've grown up with football as well. So whatever game tickles are fancy. Whether you think that there's something you know that you have an you have an edge, or if there's a game that you're watching that you want to make more interesting, you can do that too. So head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses using that Podcast One promo code at Bet Online. Your online sportsbook experts. Uh, let's get to Raptors Celtics. I mean, I don't want to talk a ton about it because a lot of people listen to this after the series ends and we do not yet know how the series ends because we're recording this in the early afternoon but do you have any particular takeaways from this series irrespective of the outcome
1: so my big takeaway from raptor celtics is one nick nurse is just incredible at the lengths to which he will go to win a series and i don't mean just like the out of balance thing or uh, like the, the challenges or like uh, the concept the officials i just mean like tactically too like he just goes to uh, he It was funny. He said, like, we gotta leave it all out there. And everybody's like, what are you doing? You can't leave it all out there. And he did. He literally left it all out there. Including his body when he forced a turnover on Jason Tatum. Like... Nurse has done absolutely everything you would want to coach you. He's he is the he really is the polar opposite of Bud. Where Bud refused to change and stuck to his principles and was like, "If I go down, I go down." And Nurse, on the other hand, is like, "I will lie, I will cheat, I will steal, I will I will make up, I will we'll play box in one, we'll go zone, I will double, I will drop, like whatever it is, I will do." Um, And then I – this is – look, the numbers bear this out. I just think the Celtics have outplayed them. I agree. I I just think that when you look at the entire context of the series, they have outplayed them. They should have won probably Game 3, and this thing should already be over. Um, I thought they outplayed them in Game 6, and I still don't understand how the Raptors won. Um, I, I don't have, if the Raptors win, it will again be a case of the Raptors just find a way to do these things, which is in and of itself a skill. Cause I talk a lot about how I mentioned this on the show with you before the great teams know how to win when things don't go right for you. Right. Like, and they, when, also, when, they also
0: have things to fall back on like insane effort and defensive execution yeah. and, and system, you know, like having a guy cut to the basket, getting extra offensive rebounds, like all of these little, little things that very rarely swing a game, but can't.
1: Yeah, and um, they just, like, their offense in the first half of game six, I like I was just constantly like, what are you doing? Like, it really was just like, let's dribble around for a while and throw the ball up. And I was like, this is not the Bucks last year. You can't do this. You're not that hot. And they, they got better at their process, I thought, in the second half and buckled down and, like, really worked to create good offense enough of the time. The Raptors' half-court offense is such a mess, and that's why Lowry matters because Lowry just, like, gets just enough done. Um I've I've talked about this before with you as well, where in every series I play the if game. Okay, if this happens, and if this happens, and if this happens. And in game six, it genuinely was. Okay, if the Raptors at halftime are able to make enough adjustments offensively, and if Kemba Walker continues to have one of the all-time games that are – like his all-time worst games of his career, let alone – like he has a very limited playoff career, but – you know, one of the worst playoff games we've seen him play. And if Kyle Lowry goes absolutely bonkers and if Serge Ibaka is reigning threes and if, and if, and if like, and if all these calls go this way and all of, if all these weird circumstances play out like this, then the Raptors can win in overtime. And I just look at all that and I go, I have to believe that the Celtics are going to win. And this is what the Raptors have done for two years though, is like, they've become the team that defies logic and so they're a hard team for me to get my head around because if they win the series i will not feel like they were the better team but they will still have advanced for the second year in a row and that has to make me think that just like my assessment is wrong but i try and pay really close attention and still wind up being like they have no half court offense. Their shooters are 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 not consistent. They're hot when they're hot and they're okay when otherwise. They don't have excellent athleticism or length. Marcus Saul has almost like been played off the floor. All of these things have just been insane. And yet here we are we're in a game seven, which again is a testament to Lowry, it's a testament to nurse, and the collective just like, no, we're not going to let this go of that team.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Another thing that I've thought about during this series is... If the NBA's goal is to produce a deserving champion, which I believe that it should be... They really can't go to series that are shorter than best of seven. Because you think about how much more variance matters then. You know, like have the little, the little fluky things. Like in this series... Generally speaking, not exclusively, the Celtics have dominated in their wins, and the Raptors have eked out wins. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the idea is that in a five, you know, in a five game series, that will happen more often in a three game theoretically. Or that's why the NCAA tournament is both fun and not good at choosing a deserving champion for better force. Yeah, and I, I, I've been really impressed with the Raptors' ability to try new things and and move off them when they don't work. And like that was something Nate and I talked a lot about on the NBA cast for Game Six was. We thought they were going to go away from the box in one when it didn't work early. Instead, Nurse modified it, and then that was better. Then they ended up going away from it anyway. But that idea is really interesting. And, like, for me, Pascal Siakam is such a fascinating figure in this series. Like, I mean, Siakam and Tatum, like, you can bring up game six and lots of other things. Like, I would say neither of those guys overall—there are some exceptions, prominently. I mean, Tatum had a big game two—that— Neither of them has had, like, incandescent series. Yet, these are really good teams that execute well defensively, that have a lot of... That not only have a lot of contributors, but also don't have that many net negatives that make the floor. That's part of why, like, Terrence Davis hasn't really been relevant in the series and a lot of the other guys. But those, you know, it... It's a reminder that not everybody can be, you know, Kawhi Leonard or something else. I remember Kawhi when he was a when he was a young player; he was more limited. He wasn't this guy when he was in. We know when that when he won the Finals MVP on the Spurs, that was a very different performance. And so, with Tatum and Siakam, wonderful players, insanely bright features, both both I love I love watching both of them. But you can take them away a little bit more, and some of that is also shots not falling. But like, did you like especially Siakam? Like, I he's amazing and I'm so thrilled with all the production he's done, but he's not at that like undeniable level yet.
1: The big thing I found with Siakam is he's, he's still such a young guy in terms of his role. A lot of it is that he has chosen his matchups poorly in this series.
0: Oh, I agree. I think both coaches have done a weird
1: job of that too. So like,
0: like isolating on OG late in, late in game six. Yeah. Uh,
1: Or, and with, with Siakam, it's like there were, there were games early in the series where it's like, why are you going to the post on Marcus Smart? Do you want to die? Like, why, why would you do this? Like, of all the things, the biggest thing with Marcus Smart is you want to try and get him in foul trouble. So try and beat him off the dribble with your athleticism. Like, if he's you're going to try he's and He's very
0: handsy, but he's not handsy in the post because yeah, he
1: doesn't have to be. Right. He's just going to body you. Um, he, I think he's attacked Brown a decent amount and gotten some pretty good shots. They brought good help there. Because I, I singled that out in the series and was like, I don't know that Siakam's going to win this series. The other thing I think that's, that's really noticeable is just... Uh, he hasn't – they haven't geared him to take threes a lot. Like They just haven't – they haven't really – and I don't think he's confident in his three-pointer right now. And that's a big deal because when I went back and watched the regular season matchups, that was a consistent trend that I looked looked for was like they just – like Jalen Brown literally is just like, you can shoot all the threes you want, man. Just go for it. I do not care. Like if Pascal Siakam beats us with threes, I don't care. They've done the same thing with Surge, where they're just like, eh. Serge Jabaka beats us with 43 points. Serge Ibaka beats us with 43 points. Like they they are willing to leave. They are willing to leave any shooter who isn't Lowry or Fred VanVleet open to a degree. They're just there. And then it goes to like OG and Powell, who they are less willing to leave completely open. Um, but the bigs in particular, like they've just been willing to leave them open, and like Siakam just hasn't been able to to hit them yet. And and, and a lot of this is just he worked on having counters to. He developed like the spin move last year was a big thing, like Pascal Siakam's spin move. But now it's like, all right, the book's out on you, man. Like they know you expect the spin move. They know to expect these various things. They know like they have a scouting report on you. You have to come back next year with something that is going to counter what they do. Now, it may be different if they advance because in the next series, like, he's going to have a huge athletic advantage over whoever he's guarding. Like I don't, I think I think Butler is probably gonna have to spend more time on the other wings and probably play free safety more. If Butler goes on Siakam, then you've got lesser defenders on Fred Van Vliet, uh and and Kyle Lowry and and an who's played so well. So like, there's all these like kind of counters. But if they don't win the series, I just look at it and go like Siakam's gonna have to get back in the lab and go. I need a I need a consistent three point shot and I need a few more counters. When they're bringing help on me to figure out how to how to to counter what they're they're pulling at me, it's a, it's similar, honestly, to Giannis.
0: Yeah, it really is, and there are. When, especially when a player is not confident in their jump shot, there are only so many things you can do. And all of the little tricks that you have with playing a team, seven games and all the additional scouting and everything else, like those, those are always going to be brought to the fore. And so then it's, what else can you do? What can you surprise them with? What is, what is different? What else can you do? Even if it's off ball or something, you know, maybe you can get some good cuts, get some offensive rebounds, all those sorts of things. And, Let's go to another perimeter player that can't shoot, and that's Russell Westbrook. And I think that Westbrook has been—you know—I was very critical. I, I understood the the kind of the process of the Daryl of Daryl Morey trading Chris Paul for Russell Westbrook. The idea, basically, being you—you
1: you critical of a Russ move? No, come on,
0: Danny. But. We, but what we've seen to me in this is that I mean, also worth noting, he's coming back from injury. This isn't this isn't the same Russell Westbrook that was when he was really good in the regular season. That was that I that has to be acknowledged here, and with him in particular, less than 100% matters more. But I think the La- the Lakers have a really good defense. But I think what really shifted the series was their formal understanding of what we what we just kind of got into with Raptor Celtics, of what can we concede and what can't we concede? And I think once the Lakers figured that out, the series, you know, then it became like, can the Rockets hit enough threes? And then it became, can they take enough threes, which was such a fascinating part of game four.
1: Yeah, I was, I was actually watching that. I'm in the process of rewatching the series in its entirety. Like, I'm going back possession by possession, backwards, essentially, today. And a lot of it um, with Russ is... <sighs> I don't even think that they're lacking in the ability to get him into good spots. It's just that Russ just isn't good enough at this point anymore. And that's like, the reason I hate these things is because I've been doing this for long enough now to remember when this wasn't the case. Yeah. Like I, I people will, will always just go like, no, nah, come on, man. It was KD. And it's like, no, nah, I'm really telling you 2013, 2014, 2015, I have a legitimate argument that Russ was as good, if not better overall, than KD was in some of those seasons. Like He was insane. Like well, he was and, so And that's
0: why the, some of the injuries he suffered in the playoffs are a really underappreciated part of why OKC yeah. never got over the hump. Is that like yeah. there were years there where they could have and they, yeah. they didn't. But a lot of that, and they just,
1: yeah, yeah. It's like if he was healthy, it just they would have, like, there's a reason why if you talk to anybody in OKC, that's and you, they will never say it publicly because that's not how they operate. But if you if you talk to folks that are close to the team, you you will hear a lot about the Patrick Beverley thing, and you you just you hear that a lot. Of that was the year we would have done it, um, and so. It pains me, but there's also just no – like last night he blew by Anthony Davis, and he just missed a wide open – like he just badly missed a layup, and he's trying to break the defense by punishing him with a three-point shot, and it's just – it's not there, and it hasn't been there, and until he – A lot of this is just like Russ is not – Russell Westbrook is not going to get in the film room and be like break down his game and go, what do I need to do? And he's not going to get into have a trainer that's like, dude, you shot like 30 percent from three and they're leaving you wide open. We got to get your jump shot to where it needs to be. Like we just got to – we have to go Jason Kidd and we just have to beat this with repetition. Um, it's just not going to happen with him because of his entire approach. And this is – like I always knew it was going to end badly for Russ because of how dependent on athleticism he was. But it's not just that. There are guys that are dependent on athleticism that can counter with everything else that they've picked up along the way. And they won't be as good, but they'll still be super good. And the problem with Russ is like I have zero faith that he will be able to let his ego reach a point where he is – like takes a step back and says – I have to change in order for us to be better. He didn't do an Um, they literally they literally lost the jazz series because he got too much into his ego about Ricky Rubio like that was why they lost that series um and then, and it's just like for all of the great things that Russ has been in this in this league and the view internally in this league about Russ. Is a lot different from the external from the fans because of how far he slid and he wound up being like a foil to Curry and Curry's super popular. But like that, there's a very big differential there, but there's just no other way. Like if I'm a GM and they're shopping in the summer, even if I'm like a bottom feeder, I'm still like, I don't really know why, man. Like I'm just, I'm not going to get a good enough version of Westbrook for it to matter. For it to really be a good situation. he's just gonna be frustrated I'm gonna be frustrated, and it's the same for a contender, and I hate to see it, but just like I don't have any other conclusion after watching how this series has gone and and part of it is you mentioned all the injuries, yeah, but it's also like look, he's over thirty, like he's gonna have these injuries. this is part of it like this is this is part of his life now as it is for every player over thirty who's not leBron like. They're all going to have injuries, and that, and you have to be able to manage those. And it's a lot harder for him too because of the way that he plays.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I, I do want to talk about Nuggets, about Nuggets Thunder or Nuggets Clippers, sorry, briefly. But it, I, I do want to spe- instead pivot. Just we could talk first before that about the potential conference finals because I'm really interested. I mean, it seems like it's going to be Celtics Lakers. Whether whether we get that resolution on Saturday or later on. And we've seen this coming for a while. It's felt like the most likely outcome, even with the Rockets being so interesting at various moments post uh, trade deadline. But how do you, you know, we don't know what's the series, but how do you see it potentially playing out?
1: So I was really high on the Clippers about a week ago, and now I'm watching a lot of Lakers. It's just look. Here's the really fascinating thing. Um, the Clippers' defense has been good in the series versus the Nuggets, in large part because of the limitations of what the Nuggets have on roster, um, and also combined with like just some bad shooting. Like Jeremy Grant's just just he's like two of, of fifteen in the last three games, and those are all deciding factors in whether or not the Nuggets win those games or have a decent uh, offensive rating. I still don't believe in this Clippers' defense a whole 100. They're really good. I don't believe them at an elite level. And what's interesting is we see in the Eastern Conference. The team that had overwhelming shooting in Miami gets past Milwaukee, and the other series is almost entirely defined by defense, right? It's just – it's a rock fight um, between the Raptors and Celtics. The Lakers are winning this series because they have just absolutely smothered the Rockets. Their offensive rating is, has ticked up over the last couple of games, but that's mostly transition and effort if you really dig into it. Like they're, they've got some tactical advantages. They've gotten some shooting. They obviously have LeBron and AD. But it really is their defense. Like Frank Vogel said today, our big three is LeBron, Anthony Davis, and our defense. And that's true, which is why this is going to be fascinating because it's – the Clippers have so many freaking weapons, so many freaking weapons. But I do think that their defense is vulnerable, but I don't know that they're vulnerable to what the Lakers do do.
0: And that's exactly why I'm really interested in the series is that I think like the Clippers vulnerabilities to peri- to like perimeter players, you know because well Paul George has been has been better, you know, especially now he's getting back. But like there are, there, are certain types of players that have uh, given them a little bit of trouble. Also, whether they're actually caring, all of those sorts of fun things. But I think, I think they can lo- like kind of not load up in terms of like structure all their support there and, and leave guys open against the Lakers. But understand that Danny Green and Cantavius Caldwell Pope, in particular, are you know what they can do within the scope of the offense is somewhat limited, and, and try to work within those constraints and. Can the Lakers do the same kind of threat assessment? Okay, you want to focus your resources on shutting down Kawhi and Paul George? Great, so be it. Then you're still going to have to do your—you're pro- having to concede something. And that's why I've been leaning towards the Clippers in this series basically since these teams were assembled is the idea that even before the Marcus Morris thing, but especially after, is that there are there are ways that the Clippers can, like, get points— even if their best player, like, even if their best players aren't having to like get as open or anything like that, they have other, you know, like Shamit. And some of those up now, those guys aren't consistent necessarily. Whereas for the Lakers, you know, I think if I were to pick the support players that I trust more, it would be the Clippers, even though both teams are imperfect.
1: Yeah, um, and I think it's. A lot of it – I wrote a piece on Action today about what I'm calling the weights where – and when we're looking at a series, we talk about X factors. But it's better to think of them more as every series is like a scale, and you've got coaching, and that provides a weight. You've got talent, which provides a huge amount of the, of the weight balance. Um, you've got luck and injuries and everything else, but also when there are these certain players that if they are light, the scale tips, and if they are heavy, the scale tips in your favor – And in these playoffs, Markeith Morris and Marcus Morris have both been heavy, heavy weights for their team. When Morris is shooting 80% from the field, the Clippers are nigh on unstoppable because you can't contain Kawhi, PG, and Morris off the dribble. You can't. He's like he's just too good of a shooter uh, to leave him open from three, and if you close out on him and he's hitting off the dribble stuff, you're just doomed. Like that's a big three if Morris continues to shoot like that. And with Markeith, that provides them with a big weapon that doesn't sacrifice their perimeter uh, length and strength that also gives them an actual shooter on the floor, and when he's hitting shots – They are just really difficult to stop because of how good they are defensively. And like like these are guys that really pull this thing in either direction. It's going to be those type of dudes, I think, that wind up mattering a lot. Like if Marquise Morris can ably defend Anthony Davis, which I think there's a pretty good chance of, uh, or Marcus Morris rather, that really tilts in their favor versus can LeBron – I don't think LeBron can go 30 minutes on a night on Kawhi. Like I just don't think he can do that. I don't think – Contavious, Caldwell, Pope, although there's some good numbers for KCP in that matchup, and and so they're like there are some opportunities but like this is a lot of what's going to come down i think of that series is going to come down to the margins and it's going to be a really it's going to be a fascinating and fun and just as epic it's the one that everybody wants and we're going to get it um i kind of hoped for someone to upset the, the ecosystem because i root for chaos mm-hmm. but we're, we're going to get that series
0: well and the other thing that's exciting about it for me is i think that series will be very different from what people like i think it could there will be times that that is an absolute rock fight of a series not consistently like there will be there will be times when the guys are when support players in particular are hitting shots and it's looking more it's more fun and freewheeling and, and you know when the Lakers run in transition it's awesome to watch but I think there will be elements where, where it just it does grind down and it's Kawhi trying to get to that spot 10 feet away to hit a to hit a basket and also one of the other huge factors for me in this series depending on whether the Lakers go bigger or smaller is Kawhi's improved passing like his ball handling and his shooting we've talked about a lot over the couple of years because it's worth appreciating I me mean, to me that's a big part of why he's become the best player in the league but his passing has really grown, and it's creating the idea of he can get his, and that's been true for a couple of years now, but now he can, he can get that extra attention and convert that into really good looks for other people. His passing to the role guy in particular has gotten a lot better, and I think that could end up being an interesting factor. He's not as good a passer as LeBron or anything silly like that, but the way that Kawhi bends a defense is changing.
1: Yeah, and his ability to pass and just everything—he's so much stronger now. Like there are all these weaknesses I had identified three years ago, and he's just fixed almost all of them. And like everyone's like, "What? How was he bad three years ago?" He's an MVP candidate. It's like, no. Like when I went back and like he was susceptible. I still think that he's susceptible to be embodied, which I think is interesting. Um, if the Lakers can force situations where Kawhi has to guard AD, I actually think that's beneficial to the Lakers because it increases the risk of getting fouls on Kawhi, and that helps um there are counters and there are counter counters and all of these things but I, I just you have so many guys playing at the absolute peak of what they can do right now you have two i think really good coaches um you have two good defenses one elite and one really good uh you have an elite offense versus one that just has so much firepower it, it i just can't, it's it's a really incredible series i think to think about
0: yeah really excited about it uh, anything else anything else you want to share before we part ways
1: you want to talk? Let's talk Nuggets Clippers real quick.
0: Absolutely. Uh, you you have a much better feel for the Nuggets than I do, and I know we, you already brought up the Jeremy Grant not hitting shots, and I think most of that is just small sample size theater. You know, it's kind of like the the Jay Crowder stuff, except maybe a little bit a little bit different. But on that on that line of just you know, if you have a four or five game sample, guys are going to hit shots, guys are going to miss shots. Um, I think one of the other interesting so in development in this is just having better personnel to slow down Jamal Murray. Helps. I think it makes a huge difference. And uh, you know, I think Murray can play better, you know, in the abstract than he has in the last couple of games. But I do think having Paul George and Patrick Beverly in particular has made a huge difference.
1: Yeah. Um and a lot of it is I will also say this, um like his numbers are good. He's he's average Jamal's average seven assists in the series to uh two two turnovers per game, roughly. Um a little bit more than two. And so it's not been terrible on that front but it hasn't been good enough either his potential assists have been low because again guys are missing wide open shots but i think a lot of it is um i've said all year that the nuggets have two offenses they have the murray Jokic pick and roll and that's just murray's going to run it over and over and over and over and over and over again and just try and bludgeon you to death with it because that's what's worked for them and it gets him into his comfort zone which is like i can shoot i can pass if i pass i'm only making one pass and it's really good there's like a simple mechanism to kick out to the corner jeremy grant um, they don't have enough variations of it as a problem, and a lot of that is, is built on Malone, but a lot of it's also built on Jamal Murray's limitations as a as a point guard. He's still growing and getting better. And the Clippers have just decided, like, I think a lot of this is, like, look, in game two, uh, there were multiple positions where Jamal Murray straight up beat Kawhi Leonard, which I wasn't expecting at any point in the series, and he did it. Like, he did it multiple times, just flat out beat Kawhi. And since then, Kawhi's played better defense one-on-one, but they've also just brought a lot more help, and they've they've yes. said, like, there's no pride there. Like there's no like Kawhi is not like no, no no I don't need help Kawhi's like no we're gonna bring this is how we're gonna shut you down and you're not gonna score 100 points and we're gonna you know if the Nuggets don't score 100 points they're never gonna win they're gonna win any of these games without, without 100 points that's nonsense um, and a lot of this is also the best way for them to win the series is for Michael Malone we talked about principles he has to abandon a lot of his principles and that's really tough for a coach to do for the entire season. And in the Jazz series, he begged them to try on defense, begged them to care about defense. And they did, and they won that series, and then they cared about it in this series. And Michael Malone's game six or game four presser, was really revealing in that he was like, he really just looked like they did what I asked. We held him to 96 points, and it just wasn't enough because our offense isn't good enough. And like, I'm curious to see what they do tonight. It probably won't matter. When you're listening to this, it's probably already done. Um, But I am just curious about what this means for Malone going forward and finding the the balance between offense and defense. He really believed that the offense was just going to run itself because it has. They've been a top five offense every year or or top ten at least, and so they've been good every single season. And he really just believed that with Jokic and Murray and how good Jokic is and what they'd installed, that it would be enough, and it just hasn't been. They need more counters to them, to what they have systemically, and they also probably need one more guy. Like, that's been my big takeaway from the series is they need one more guy. And if they have one more guy, I think the series is much different. I still think the series – like, if they win in five, it will be just like, oh, yeah, the Clippers handle them. And it's like, look, they – like, the Nuggets, I think, outplayed them in game three and they probably should have won that game and they just did not get the yeah, shots that they needed. I, I agree.
0: I was very yeah. frustrated with game 3.
1: Yeah, and then game 4, they just blew a tire in the first quarter and never recovered. Like they took the lead in the third quarter, but if they had not like completely blown a tire in the first quarter, the game the third quarter means that they're surging to a bigger lead. Doc probably says like all right, fine, we'll come back in the next game, we'll come back in 5. Um they just haven't caught in the breaks in this series. They started off tired because of the last series. They was they were never in that game. Um, the Clippers probably have one more blowout in them, which is why I probably think that they blow them out tonight and it's done. Um, The Nuggets came back from 3-1 last time. They were a great team versus adversity, but every team has its limit, and I wonder if this is it. But in general, I just think that they need more. Like MPJ will get integrated into the offense next season. They'll try and add one more guy. If they don't, they at least are adding MPJ as a fully integrated part of the offense. Finding that balance is going to be a tension point for that team going forward. They're close. They're just not close enough.
0: The last question I want to ask you is just: What do you see, knowing what we know right now, as the Nuggets front court moving forward? Is it Porter Jr. and Grant starting together? Is it something other than that? Like I, that's where I think it's going: Is Grant, you know, Grant guarding the better defender, MPJ guarding the worst one, and and I think that's a really intriguing unit moving forward. But I want to see if you feel differently.
1: Yeah, so there's there's a lot of evidence Adam Morris is keyed in on this, and I had always expected – my my expectation for next season was that I thought it would be Jamal Murray, Will Barton, Michael Porter Jr., Jeremy Grant, and Nikola Jokic as the new starting five. Now I tend to lean towards it's probably going to be um, Jamal Murray, Gary Harris, Michael Porter Jr., Jeremy Grant and Nicole Jokic as the starting five. Uh, it will add the front court will absolutely, I think be those three, unless Grant gets an offer that is so high that the Kronkies, after losing out on all of their TV revenue, because they never got a deal with Comcast an underrated part of any sort of discussion about the nuggets coupled with the loss of the revenue for fan attendance in both Los Angeles and Colorado with the Rams, the avalanche and the nuggets. Um, All of that may cause the Cronkies to reassess how much money they want to spend uh, coming out of this pandemic. But if those are not factors, then I expect it to be Jeremy Grant is retained at a pretty good number. I actually think Paul Millsat probably comes back in pretty cheap as a bench guy, as a bench veteran. Um, Jokic obviously is still there. Jamal Murray has now had two – he has the number one, number two scoring performances in Nuggets playoff history. So he's there. And then the question is just going to be can you get Jokic – can you build a system with Jokic, Murray, and Porter? Yep. And there are reasons why why every single one of those makes the combination difficult. And but it's also an incredible amount of talent and uh, it will be a, a lot of talent going forward. They're very well set. Uh, Grant is great in that he can spread the floor, has athleticism, can run. He's gotten better on defense as the year went on and um his big weakness is rebounding and MPJ's an an insane rebounder just an absolutely insane rebounder and so that counters a lot of it so i think the future is still really bright for denver but the the path gets a lot more narrow for them to avoid stepping into a bad territory going going forward
0: absolutely and it can it can, this step can be really challenging but they do have the talent and talent is an important part of this <laughs> you know just 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 to make it all the way through so I, i'm really interested in how that works out thank you so much for taking the time Thanks again to Matt Moore for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at the Action Network. You can also hear him all over. He's often on Locked On Nuggets, which has been really fabulous during this playoff run. And of course, if you don't already, you can follow him on Twitter at HP Basketball. Love having Matt on. Love having his perspective. And as I talked about during the show, his instincts on the Bucks Heat series were shockingly spot on. Um, I just didn't see it coming. He did full credit there. That is something that happens. And and Matt watches the league incredibly well and has insights into teams. I mean, I remember his his inclinations on previous iterations of the Celtics were something that I I really ended up gravitating towards. Love having him on. And... So much going on. I mean, between Dunked On Prime, so now Dunked On is four episodes a week or subscription. One episode a week is still public and free. And if you're a subscriber, Dunked On Prime, then you also get that fifth episode ad-free. So that's pretty great. And if you want to do total access, you can get a bunch of additional benefits, including our daily dunks and a Discord and a bunch of other things. Also, lots of written work at The Athletic. I have my off-season previews are still going strong. The Oklahoma City Thunder, which I had to rework with the Billy Donovan stuff, uh, that should be coming out soon. Also have my piece breaking down kind of the, what I call the Giannis timeline about if, you know, theoretically the different ways, if he were to decide to change teams, that it could theoretically happen, which teams make sense in each place. So that's definitely a, I would say, worthwhile read because I tried to put it all in one spot. And also the NBA cast, that's Nate and I live broadcasting games. If you listen to this really quickly after it's released, you can listen to, uh, when we do game seven of Raptors Celtics. That will be live, of course, following that. And then we will be doing various games throughout the conference finals and the NBA finals. So you can keep an eye on that, much appreciated. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player your choosing. You can also, word of mouth, you like a specific episode, you like the whole series and you want somebody else to know about it, just tell them. It's something that can help, whether it's in person, on social media, whatever. And subscribing, downloading, extremely important for any show, whether you use Spotify or Apple Podcasts or really whatever. Subscribing, then it'll pop into your player whenever it's ready, and that really makes a massive difference. Then... The single most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode. That is Bet Online. Use that Podcast One promo code for your awesome sign-up bonus, but also to tell them that you came from us. Hopefully they continue advertising, help keep the lights on here. As always, if you have any input, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA, at gmail.com is the way to get that to me. If you take the time to write it there, I will take the time to read it. It pops into a specific place in my inbox, and uh, I, I make sure to read those every day. Um, and I try to respond. I don't make a guarantee 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 there, I make a guarantee that I'll read it. So if it's insight on, hey, you should have this person on or this worked, this didn't work, I I go through all of that. And I really do appreciate it because it makes the show better. And that's something that matters a ton to me. So be back next week. Don't have a guest lined up, but have you know plenty of things to discuss with where the league is going right now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.